I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Let's cross the road here. Wait. How long? Wait. Oh, come on. How long is it going to be? Wait. All right. Just why not ask politely? Wait. Oh, here we go. Hey, how are you doing, listeners? Adam Buxton here. Good to be with you again. Not out walking Rosie today, sadly, because I'm in a city you can probably hear. I'm in Los Angeles, or La La Land, as I like to call it. <laughs> La La Land. I came up with that. I don't know if you've heard of Los Angeles. It's a big city over on the west coast of a country called... Trumpton, and it's the world's number one producer of both tinsel and dreams. I am currently sat on a bench on the corner of Crescent Heights Boulevard and Santa Monica Boulevard. There's quite a few people who look like me sat on the benches, scruffy, older gentlemen with a lot of facial hair, and uh, I'm out in Los Angeles partly to buy some tinsel because Christmas is just around the corner and partly to record a few conversations for this podcast some of which you'll be hearing over the next few weeks normal service introduction wise will be resumed next week for now though let me tell you about this week's ramble which is as you may have realized with British actor writer comedian press regulation advocate sometime cocaine enthusiast and channeler of one of the greatest comedy characters of all time. Steve Coogan. He's the actor, not the character. The character's Alan Partridge. Steve Coogan is the person who channels him. I talked to Steve at his house just outside Brighton in the UK in January of this year, 2017. And after he'd shown me his collection of around four or five classic cars which I found myself genuinely and unexpectedly impressed by, I have to be honest. He made some tea and we sat in his kitchen for an hour or so of enjoyable rambling. Now, I'd never met Steve Coogan before. I'd been in the same room with him a couple of times, uh, but never really talked. Rob Bryden had told him that he should accept my invitation to be on this podcast. So thank you very much, Rob. I found Steve both reassuringly similar to the person I'd imagined, the car collection, for example, and yet quite different. See what you think. It was a fun convo. Here we go.
How's your morning been so far? It's a Thursday. Um, it's good. I went to the gym. How often do you go to the gym? It's, if I'm being good, two, three times a week. Yeah. But I'm not particularly sporty. It's just that I used to not care, and I used to sort of drink a lot and be badly behaved, and, and, and I stopped all that. And I just wanted to... I like the, you know, um, breaking a sweat and feeling fit and, and now I sort of find it slightly addictive mm. oh, it's good. and also it means that I can have pudding if I want you know? yeah <laughs> rush out of the gym pick up some pudding what's your favourite pudding uh, I think probably anything that's got rhubarb in it really like, yeah yeah rhubarb and custard probably do you know what forced rhubarb is no Interesting. I learned about this on the trip, actually. Forced rhubarb is kind of the veal equivalent. Cruel um, rhubarb. It's kind of cruel rhubarb because what they do is they, they grow the rhubarb in dark warehouses yeah. with no light. And there's little holes at the top of the warehouse where, where, the, where the rhubarb strains for the light. And in doing so, it becomes very, very pink and, uh, and, and is naturally sweet. So, you know, sometimes rhubarb's a bit green, isn't it? It can be a bit of greeny pink. I don't well, like rhubarb. Well, forced rhubarb is super, super pink, and it's naturally sweet. And, and very tender. Very tasty, and you don't, you don't need to sweeten it as much. So I like, I like rhubarb. But it is dreadfully cruel. It is a bit cruel to the rhubarb, yes, <laughs> to, to keep them in warehouses like that with no light, yeah. So now that do you, you, you don't drink, you, you're sort of pretty straight edge these days, I have right? the odd cig- cigarette, not very often, but occasionally in the evenings, yeah. actually. But that's all I do, I don't drink. So what, is a, what constitutes a sort of blowout uh, these me, days then, yeah? Just having some time to do, to um, go and watch a bunch of stuff in my cinema. Um, yeah. With friends, I go up to the lakes and go walking. It sounds so dull, doesn't it? <laughs> um, I do. I like to go out for dinner, and I've got to sound like the apotheosis of middle-class mediocrity. Come I mean, on. I just like to do stuff that people who've got a disposable income like to do. Yeah. <laughs> what do you watch on your movie screen? Um, well, I watch a combination of things. I, I'm not. I did watch that that thing called The Night of recently. Oh man, I loved it. Yeah, Riz Ahmed. Yeah, I thought it was really, really impressive. So good, wasn't it? Um, I might watch something like that. And then what I try to do is, um, and I like to watch old films. Not a lot of cutting in a lot of old films, I've noticed. Sometimes they let it all play out in a tableau. Yeah. So it's almost like a play. And they've rehearsed the hell out of it. So, you know, you'll have a scene that will go on as long as the spool of film would last. Mm -hmm. And I I like the fact that they're sort of accessible and and not uh, too uh, esoteric. But they're they're, um, funny and engaging and they've got humanity mm-hmm. and that and so i like to look for things like that and a lot of those old masters did those 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 kind of films and and uh, they kind of it's only years later that you realize sometimes because something's popular at the time it seems perhaps lowbrow and it's only when the years like dickens you know mm. it's only when time passes that you realize there's people still there's some substance there some substance behind yeah the, yeah like dire straits <laughs> <laughs> I quite like that story. So, you know, this is a bit trivia. You know, you know, um, Sultans of Swing. Sure. Um, well, she's a great song. The guitarist, Guitar George, George Borowski. Yeah. I used to do lots of gigs with him in Manchester. Did you? Yeah. Years when I started out in Manchester, there were these strange gigs that were called busker gigs, where people would get up and do some comedy, or they play a guitar, or they'd read poetry, and there'd be people like, you know, uh, Lem Sissay, a guy called Brian Glancy who uh, Guy Garvey sang about 
and those um, Henry Norman, me, Caroline O'Hearn, John Thompson, and G- G- George Borowski, yeah, who does have an old guitar, as described in the song Songs of Swing. Yeah. yeah. A bit of trivia for you there. So what would you be doing? Would you be doing comedy songs? This or? was like 25, maybe nearly 30 years ago. Uh, do I would know I'd get up and do some impersonations and a little bit of comedy. I was discovering what it was I wanted to do. Mm. I was at drama school in Manchester, and there were no real alternative cabaret venues in Manchester, in fact. The only places I could find were supporting indie bands. And which kind of bands did you support? Did you support any bands that ended up being well-known? Um, well, I support my brother's band, who had one hit, like, 25 years ago. Uh, the Mock Turtles had a hit called yeah. Can, you, Can You Dig It? And, um, and I supported a band called The Chameleons. Were you ever in a band? No, well, uh, you know, at school, yeah. uh, <laughs> I was in like a sixth form art house band where I played the synthesizer. Yeah, that's my my era. That yeah, right, early eighties, you know, sort of synth pop. Synth pop, yeah, same here. Yeah. Love it. What were you listening to? I like Human League, Heaven Seventeen, you know, Ultravox, John Fox. Would um, you get as um, uh, Would you go as poppy as Thomas Dolby? Uh, a little bit. I like the Thompson Twins, and then, but yeah. I also like China Crisis and stuff like that. Uh, um, sort of poppy, but with a bit of a slight pretensions to art. It was sort of like it was almost like a kind of a, the legacy of punk and Bowie, uh, sort of that coalesced in these sort of, sort of blokes from ordinary backgrounds who um, I think they're sort of probably mostly grammar school boys who formed these bands and they discovered poetry at school. Mm-hmm. So that, and, and they wanted to sort of somehow be artistic. And, and so and that's a great lyric in um, the Undertones song, which is one of my favourite Undertones songs, My Perfect Cousin. Huh. It's about his perfect cousin, how he, what he likes, to, what I like to do, he doesn't. And he's his family's pride and joy. But one of the lyrics says, his mom, mother bought him a synthesizer. She got the Human League into advisor. Now he's making lots of noise, playing along with the art school boys. <laughs> and that was you. That was me, yeah. <laughs> I liked all that stuff as well. China Crisis. I had a lot of time mm. for China Crisis. Yeah, it was all sort of very... It was, it was uh, when it was fashionable to, to be um, sad and interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember developing a taste for things that weren't mainstream. And I, I think at the age of 12, refusing to go and see Greece because I proudly tell my friends, it's too commercial. (laughs) That sounds like my son now, my eldest son. He's quite snooty in that way. And I'm sure he'll look back and think and realise that actually he he thumbed his nose at a lot of stuff that was actually quite good. Yeah, I know, yeah. That's the trouble. The thing is, what I found is that as, uh, you know, because I remember, you know, disco was like, the, the devil to me I hated disco and and also because it, music was quite ghettoized in those days you know um, I remember one of my friends ringing me up saying I'm going to become a heavy rocker do you, do, I'm going literally I'm going to become a heavy rocker do you want to join me and I remember saying I'm going to have to politely decline you know, I, mean, I wish you luck but having but you know years later I think that all that sort of tribalism meant you weren't allowed to like music and of course you know now you know, the beat, listen to the Bee Gees and what great songs they wrote and uh, yeah. and, uh, and fantastic bands like, you know, Chic and Nile Rodgers and you just become more Catholic, I think, with your taste as you get older because you appreciate things and you don't feel like you have to become to be tribal about it. You end up enjoying radio too. <laughs> <laughs> is what happens. And all that sort of middle-of-the-road culture that you used to think, God, that's boring. When yeah. you were younger, it's like, oh, okay, it's actually pretty good. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. Um, heavy metal, heavy rock, etc. 
I know what you mean. It always seemed like a little bit of a cul-de-sac. The fun thing about a lot of art school type music was that you would be fired off on in other directions and you would discover different things. Yeah. They weren't scared of esoteric. I mean, it was the worst thing you could say about it was it was a bit pretentious, but I mean, yeah. only by risking that do you discover new ideas and Yeah, most of a lot of the things I really like uh, could be described as pretentious in some way. There's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to well what does I mean what's the definition of pretentious I'm not sure taking yourself if, too seriously well, if perhaps, a, it, well if a band for example if as soon as a band had a chart hit I'd sort of disown them mm-hmm. because just by just by din of, of, of being successful that the, the equation was that they automatically must have sold their soul in some way because it was almost impossible to be successful and um <laughs> And authentic. Yeah, there you go. That's a good definition. Like taking up a position on something just because of the way you think it makes you look. Yeah, and and of course secretly still liking it with a feeling you had to adopt a position because it was about about posturing or something. Posturing, right. Being being concerned with what other people think Mm. of you if you like that kind of stuff. Or trying to find an identity that you thought was interesting and not being... uh, Well, I think even now, if you're in a room of people who are all nodding their heads in agreement... I think just instinctively, I, I, I want to sort of question it. Yeah, I think it's, so you're not on Twitter then? No, I'm not on Twitter. No, and, and, and if I was on Twitter, I'd definitely get monstered. Which is, I, I'm not so desperate that I need all the people to like me all the time because I know some people don't like me, and I'm really, I'm very comfortable with that. Mm. I, I, I don't do uh, Twitter because um, I know I'd get all my, my I get sucked down some wormhole of a discussion with people who I'm never going to change their point of view and and it would sap creative energy Mm. it's difficult for artists isn't it because as soon as what they do is embraced by the public there is uh, um, some sort of perceived pressure on them to hold forth about certain issues at various times and often it doesn't go well you know because their main skill whether they're a songwriter or an actor or a comedian or whatever is making people laugh or moving them with a song or mm. a performance mm. or whatever. That's how they really are best at articulating yeah, themselves. Yeah, it is, yeah. And then when they come out and they make pronouncements <laughs> about difficult issues, mm. they often end up looking a bit daft and they get so much flack for it. I mean, yeah. we're speaking uh, a week or two after Meryl Streep stood up at the Golden Globes and said how disgusted yeah. she was with yeah. Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know... Within the artistic community, she was patted on the back and everyone was pleased. But then there was a wider reaction that was just like, oh, shut up, you know. What yeah. do you know? You're an actor. You're paid to pretend. Yeah, but th- I, also, I also think that everyone has a right to their point of view. And the idea oh, yeah. that you can't... Uh, and also, I tell you what's interesting to me is that... Here's an observation I made, is that in terms of popular culture and modern creativity, there aren't many right-wing, effective creative communicators in the world they're almost all left of center and what that to me says is that basically if you uh, are artistic uh, truly artistic and therefore have a humanity about what you do that it's very difficult to embrace humanity and be right wing Mm -hmm. and that's uh which is why all the people performing at Donald Trump's inauguration are all well. No, no one of any no is. Who's he got? I don't know. I've, I've... Well, apparently the Bruce Springsteen tribute band pulled out. That's a pretty low blow. <laughs> These are strange times. Yeah. Although interesting, you could yeah. say. 
people say, may you live in interesting times. I mean, it doesn't get much more interesting. No, that's very true. And I mean, a lot of people said this, and I do hope it's, it, there's something in it, is that I was listening to Malcolm Gladwell on the radio, and he was saying that maybe the shift of, of the political landscape will sway back the other way because when people are galvanised especially in in the US say you know we we don't want to live in a world fuelled by anger and hate it could be Mm. in the long run actually uh, a good thing yeah although before things swing back I think there's a certain kind of um, preening self-righteousness in the left that probably has to uh, die there's, down. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it's about not just about finding a voice again. It's, um, well, the, a lot of the left have been living in an echo chamber, you know, because certain people feel disenfranchised by it. It doesn't speak to ordinary people. It can be seen as elitist. Um, although, you know, I'm not from an elitist background. I'm from a low-middle-class background, and I was always, I think, raised with decent values, you know. Um, we didn't have lots of money. We were We, we got by... Um, uh, we were, you know, comfortable. My pet, my dad worked hard. He did the sort of things he supposed to. Had a job for life. You know, worked nine to five. And my mom looked after the family. And the values I was raised with were to be kind to people, to be generous. If you had more than the person next to you, then you share that with them. But the, but um, you know, we weren't a part of the metropolitan elite. Mm. We just had your decent... parents were. Uh, they took in foster children, right? Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. We fostered an extra. There was always an extra couple of kids in the house at any one time. Mm. But they weren't sanctimonious about it. It was just like that's what you do if you if you're comfortably off. You help people who aren't. It's re- it was really very very simple. It was fueled by their faith, which I don't have, but I'm still pleased that they gave me those values. The trouble with the uh, people on the extreme right is they shout with the loudest voice mm-hmm. and they will they pander to people's insecurities you know you point the finger and you give a simple solution you know it's very difficult when when you're trying to say to people uh, these are these are complex issues because no one wants to contemplate complexity people want to compl- contemplate simplicity yeah yeah no one has bumper stickers in america saying i love nuance like <laughs> <laughs> You must have gone through quite a difficult time when you were involved with the press. And when I was involved in Hacktoff, yeah. Hacktoff. Yeah, and I still, I'm still involved in Hacktoff. And again, very anti-nuanced. It's like anyone who wants to enable people who have no money to have a mechanism to challenge things that are written about them that aren't true, there's no effective mechanism. When The Guardian tries to advance its arguments against uh, Hacktoff, they always cite me and Hugh Grant and a few celebrities, but they don't mention the Dowlers, they don't mention the Hillsborough families because it doesn't fit in with the, how they're trying to frame the argument. And yet those are the people who we want to see have access to effective uh, remedy when they've been wronged in the press. You said The Guardian. Do you mean the, uh, the Guardian anti-hacked off? Yeah, well, yes, very largely. I mean, there are, oh, really? there are a few sympathetic journalists. In fact, in actual fact, there are certain journalists that uh, worked for... The Guardian that, that have been, you know, incredibly noble. In fact, it broke broke the hacking story. Mm. But it's interesting that um, even the Guardian, uh, who had uh, access to that story, made that story available to the New York Times, and the New York Times was the newspaper that broke the story of hacking initially, and then it trickled back to this country because no newspaper, including the Guardian felt that they wanted to stick their head above the parapet because they'd get clobbered by all the other newspapers, which is honour amongst thieves, you know. 
How were you made aware, first of all, that, that your calls were being taped? Um, they, well, they weren't taped. Hacking was when you hack into a voicemail. But what they used to do was they would have two phones. A journalist would have two phones. They would phone the number of the well-known person. And when that person answered the phone, they would then call again on the other phone. So they'd get through to the voicemail. And generally, they just put in four zeros to get access to, because most people wouldn't put in a security code on their voicemail. And that was just as a way of possibly getting a bit of tickle-tackle. But they would use, what they would do is they knew that it was illegal, because what they would do is they would get confirmation by other means. So, And that happened to me, because so they would say, for example, you know, we know uh, this about you, but they wouldn't say where they got the information. As soon as they say something, they've confirmed the story. So, so it, was a, it was an illegal way of just basically getting information uh, from people. The thing about you as well is that for tabloids, etc., you're such tasty fodder. Here, for example, is a, um, a synopsis of your life thus far, plucked from the Daily Mail. Well, from the Mail Online. <laughs> and this is not, like, all pejorative, but it is selective. Coogan was born the fourth of six children to a working-class Catholic family in the Manchester suburb of Middleton. He studied theatre at the city's polytechnic, having been rejected by RADA, and had his first big break as the voice on Spitting Image. All shockingly correct, so far. His comic creation, the blundering, self-important Norfolk radio personality Alan Partridge, defined his career for 20 years. But his success has been marred by cocaine abuse, drug-induced panic attacks, and a turbulent private life. So that's how they've crystallised you in their mind. Mm. Those things Mm. overshadow. You talk about those things in your book, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, because now I can contextualise that period of my life as being in the past, I feel like I've uh, I've sort of come through that period of um, self-indulgent, uh, uh, slightly hedonistic substance abuse. I mean, I think I sort of trace it back to the fact that I was so ambitious, I sort of didn't really have an irresponsible adolescence, as it were. Right. So I kind of skipped that because I was so ambitious. And then when I become, became successful, I thought, well, I'm going to have a bit of fun now. I'm going to just like be Live really, the life. Ir- really irresponsible and, and do a bit of rock and roll. But I really ought to have sort of, you know, most people get that out of your system by their 30s, and I hadn't. Um, also, you had that physical aspect of getting the panic attacks off the back yeah. of taking coke. Well, it was, yeah. Phys- but, well, I had panic attacks for a few years. I mean, they were, and they were quite severe, but definitely were triggered by yeah. not pretty, behaving in a particularly balanced way. So it was, it was uh, yeah, I just, I just got therapy, and, uh, and then that, I resolved that part of it pretty quickly, but I carried on taking drugs. So, um, <laughs> right. um, so, so okay. I've got the panic attack licks, and now I can just carry on having fun. But that I feel that that part of my life now is is something that's very much you know in the past. Um, yeah. And so it was it was hard. It was tough, and I felt expo- I felt very exposed and uh, and very vulnerable, and uh, it was a bit of a shock uh, that my private life was all over the papers and all the rest of it. But the thing is, I'm now I'm kind of, uh, I've developed a thick skin, um, as the years went by. And what I tended to do was not become consumed with it. So I tried to concentrate on making sure that my work was good. And even when my private life was a mess, my work was still pretty good. What was the work you were doing around that time then? Well, I mean, in 1998, 
I had I won two BAFTAs, a bunch of comedy awards. And that's Partridge. I'd done, yeah, that was like sort of golden year for me. And I was do at a 10, 11 week sellout show at the Lyceum, which was, I was firing on all cylinders. And there was uh, the, the man who thinks he's it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So it was hugely successful. Was the, the tour top. was hugely yeah. successful. Every, the world and his wife came to see it. I was just knocking out of the park and I was also doing a lot of cocaine. Yeah. So, I mean, so it was a good appropriate title for the uh, tour. Uh, yeah, it was. It was. <laughs> and in fact, you know, a lot of people have different reasons for doing that kind of stuff. But I don't, you know, it wasn't, uh, certainly wasn't, I'm not going to blame it on some sort of troubled childhood. I didn't take it because I felt bad about myself. I took it because I felt really good about myself. Mm. And, uh, but you weren't, you weren't worried. At the time, you weren't thinking, oh, man, I've got to watch myself here. Uh, no, because well, as with all people who abuse substance abuse, what you do is you say, well, I don't feel particularly good about having done this, so I'll do some more. Um, That'll block it out. <laughs> so you, then you get into a cyclical approach. Of course, any excessive behaviour like that, whether it's alcohol um, or drug abuse or any kind of behaviour like that, is, of course, it doesn't work. You know, it's diminishing returns and you, it doesn't make you happy. The drugs don't work, as they say. I, I used to be sort of envious of some people who would be in recovery because what they do is they, they'd, uh, they'd hit rock bottom. And I never had to hit rock bottom. And for people who hit rock bottom, they sort of think they lose everything and they go, I've got to build my life back up. Well, then it really happened to me. So I was just like, you know, you know, the bills are being paid. I'm still winning the occasional award and I'm, I'm, I'm making people laugh most of the time. So, so no one ever so. organised an intervention for you or no, anything like that? No, no, no. no. And... Uh, and the trouble is when you're, when you're successful, then, of course, people, even people being tolerant, you can be indulged as long as you're still... Paying the bills. Paying the bills, and you're doing things, and you're, 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 you're delivering in a professional sense. Then, of course, then, it become, then you become indulged. Mm. So it's not particularly healthy. So you have to just, you know, you just have to sort of um, get a grip and, and start. No, 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 no. I guess the other thing about you, though, is that you're so good at mining negative characteristics in a lot of the characters you play. Mm. Or and they're not, you know, they're not like you don't play monsters, but no. you, but but the characters, weak people, I think, or, or troubled people. Right, right. But they are. Um, so here's a list of characteristics I wrote down that I associate with mainly Partridge, but also yeah. aspects of Saxondale and even your portrayal of Martin Sixsmith and Tony Wilson. Mm. There's a lot of vanity there a lot yeah, of the time. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, they're pompous. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> well, there, there, there are also things that are, are definitely in me. Um, I think there was something in a newspaper that read my autobiography and said, it's just as ridiculous as the Partridge book. And I thought, well, it's not a big insult to say that I'm a bit like Alan Partridge. Of course I am. I write the fucking character. If you're self-aware, then, you, you know, especially if you're involved in comedy... You do things that you know are not particularly attractive. What you do is you, you just observe that and you put it into your work. So the um, characteristics you just mentioned, definitely part of me. And it's I quite, so there's a lot more. Yeah, I'm sure The there's list a lot is more. really yeah. long. <laughs> <laughs> Keen to be thought of as successful. Yeah, yeah. Massive chip on shoulder yeah, oh, yeah. in some areas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But all, that's, all that's true. <laughs> I, mean, I, just, I often say, I mean, when I used to write Partridge, I would say stuff in the office and they'd go, just write that down. <laughs> and I'd say, well, I wasn't being Alan. They went, no, no, but it just sounds good just as Alan. So I'll give you an example, right? 
My guilty pleasure is I like to watch air crash investigation. Okay, right? I just say that that's what Alan does. Right? I did, we didn't think about it. We just, as we were writing, we were just going, we, we thought, oh, it would be quite funny if Alan watches air crash investigation. And it sounds like a very Alan thing to do. But, that, but that's what I sometimes do. But I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not haunted by that. You know, it's just what you do if you're creative. You put these things in that you know sound a bit stupid or a bit lowbrow, but they they they're all it's all fuel to the fire. Well, the other thing about the characters, I think, is that they know who they are. They're happy in themselves, mm. and they're not struggling with self doubt that's crippling them. There's chinks of self doubt, yeah. certainly in Alan and Saxondale, I'd say, and even even. Tony Wilson. Possibly. I mean, I think that's so, an yeah, attractive yeah. quality. It, it, it is. It, it, uh, there are chinks of self-doubt which are, that for the most part, yeah, they, they are comfortable in their own skin. But then there are moments of um, <laughs> self-doubt. Um, I, th- I think a good character is someone you care about. And, but I, I think I've, I've sort of earned the place, with probably with Alan, is that the, the lineage of comic, well-loved British comedy characters through the years... The, the thing that makes them last for people is that people have affection for them as well as finding them pompous or ridiculous or reprehensible. Yeah, very much so. However, however and also, so much of it is relatable, and because you're, you're so good, um, along with the uh, Gibbons brothers who write with you now, doing Partridge, at nailing little teeny-weeny things about not only stuff that you're into or that a person like that might be into, which very often are, are, are the same things that the, the viewer is into. You talk about those air crash shows. I like stuff like that too. And a lot of Partridge stuff that comes up, I think, yeah, I like that too. <laughs> I'm into that. Yeah. And the way he thinks, like, there's a bit at the beginning of Nomad when you're talking about the whole idea of walking and you're walking up to the top of a hill and measuring out the whole journey in your mind like half a step more and oh, I'm, I'm ruining it. it, it was, it's the idea that if he gets to the top of the mountain, he'll avert some sort of humanitarian disaster. There you go. And, 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 so that it, and that that's what gets him to the top of the mountain, is trying to say that if he doesn't get to the top, lots of innocent people will be slaughtered. As a little self-motivation <laughs> A self-motivation trick. technique. Um, it's great because it is, that's, it's exactly how so many people think. I know, I certainly do. You have all these little stupid crutches that you use. Yeah, I think when he talks about, I mean, the Gibbons, I'd say, came up with the best lines in that book, no doubt about it. And um, the thing that made me laugh out loud was was that we all of us walk uh, from the pert strut of a Strictly Come Dancer to the no-nonsense galumph of a lady Tory politician. (laughs) (laughs) I just made me love the idea of a galumphing. And when you came back to do those mid-morning matters shorts, mm. which were online, first of all, weren't they? They were online because what happened was there was a big break because uh, I first started writing Patrick Marber, then Patrick and Armando, then I'm, I say I'm Armando Iannucci. I mean, I assume people know who, who he is. Uh, uh, Patrick Marber, Patrick and Armando, and then Armando and uh, Peter Bainham. And then there was a big gap because Armando went off to do his stuff and Peter went off to America. And so I was kind of left a bit writerless, even though I, you know, I, do, I am in the writing room with the writers and, I, and I'm, I'm the only writer who's been with Alan since the year dot. Mm-hmm. I didn't have anyone I thought could find a, that, that voice or, or, and I didn't feel equipped to do it alone because I generally I've always worked, collaborated with other people on everything I've done and uh, that's one of the smartest things I've done is, is basically find the smartest person in the room and 
jump on them. But then I asked the Gibbons to write something for a live tour I was doing about six years ago when I revived a sort of live show, and um, they submitted some material on Alan. It was really so wonderful, so well observed, in a way that other people had attempted to do and hadn't. And it was so, so well done. That I remember crying, laughing, and thinking, I can, I can, if I want to revive this character, I can, um, because I feel like I've got a new voice. And they, I think, brought a sort of a, um, a vulnerability to, to Alan that was only quietly present before. They brought that to the fore. And, and it's, it's genius to switch him from being this kind of little Englander racist to someone who really wants to be thought of as more of a liberal and uh, someone who's aware of women's rights and uh, race issues and things like yeah. that. Yeah, it's someone who's trying to move with the times, I think, and uh, is, is trying to... I think he's sort of... He probably looked at David Cameron and thought, oh, I ought to do a bit of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I just don't find it... That, that kind of in, intolerance... To me, wasn't fun. wasn't didn't uh, you couldn't really mine much comedy. From well, it, it wouldn't be very funny now for that reason. Yeah. I mean, it would be less funny just to see. Because what was funny is you felt like it was sort of a disappearing point of view. Um, now it feels like distasteful somehow yeah. because it is because it is the becoming sort of legitimised in a kind of ugly way. Yeah, not that many people that I can think of came back with a character that big but did it online at that point well we did you know we, we, we deliberately did was when we did mid-morning masses we decided uh, that instead of putting out a big platform and saying here's our new character blah 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 i wanted it to be a quiet creeping back in soft launch that's right soft launch um when in actual fact i think it was we were doing it with fosters at the time which i always felt very awkward about um um, right, not being a drinker. Well, well I, I think I probably was a drinker at the time, but certainly I wouldn't drink Foster's. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Come on, mate, it's the Amber Nectar. <laughs> um, but they, at one point, I think they said, we want to put big billboards everywhere advertising Alan. And I said, well, I feel like that's Alan advertising your lager. You know? But they said, no, we'll put billboards over for free to publicise your show. I said, I said, I don't want you to. I said, what do you mean? Don't you want as many people as possible to? Do you want to sort of shout about your new show? And I was like, no, I don't, actually. I'd rather people just found it, found out about it word of mouth. And also, because because it's an established character, I want to sort of just do it on a very, very low-key way. And uh, and it it worked. Uh, um, Also, there wasn't as much pressure then. Mm, Yeah, and also you've got... Tim Key in the in the picture, and that was great as well. Uh, Tim was fantastic. I remember first came across Tim. I, remember, I think it was in Edinburgh, and then he did it. He, he played a tiny little part in Saxondale, but I do remember watching him when people auditioned for smaller roles. You just put them on tape and you watch them all. And I remember watching this guy, thinking, "Who the hell is that? And why?" Um, there's always it's always exciting when you're in this business if someone's making you laugh and you don't quite know why yeah. because of course when you work in comedy as, as you know you, you become familiar with certain patterns and, and formulae don't you go oh that's very funny but he's doing that thing so it's always refreshing when someone comes along and you don't know what you don't understand what they're doing it's like a conjuring trick he would do little just movements with his eyebrows his eyes and and mumble things and it was just I remember just laughing so much and not understanding why and thinking I really really want him you know in my creative life and so when we were doing Partridge I, I, uh, you know we asked him to come and uh, be a sidekick and he does it brilliantly <laughs> because uh, he's at once grateful for the opportunity but also slightly 
uh, bullied and clearly a bit intellectually superior to Alan and all the rest of it, all the things that, that go with that. So, uh, yeah, it enriched it all. Yeah, it's great. And then those specials as well were excellent. The um, especially the Scissor Isle thing from last year. Yeah, Scissor Isle was a real, real pleasure to make. I think it was actually a contractual obligation, but it was one of those things we said, "Oh, actually, they, you said that you'd give them another special, and you did the deal ages ago." I was like, "Ah, oh, we've got to do another one." Um, but we've always, we've never wanted to phone in something, and we always said, "We've got to make it good. We've got to make it good." And I mean, that was essentially a series of sketches, almost, wasn't it? But it was, yeah. but they were so good, man. That's some yeah. of the best Partridge stuff. <laughs> Stuff in the supermarket and yeah, it was one of those. We'd been inspired by those apology pieces where someone does something wrong publicly, and to atone for it, they try to spin it into a relaunch of their career by doing a very public mea culpa. Yeah, well, it's no longer fashionable to apologise for anything you do wrong now. It's it's sort of staggering. What's it's very odd when you do a character that has to be a filter for the world you live in and watch how, watch how it changes. So you're going to do more Partridge stuff? Well, funnily enough, the, the more... Uh, because I and we, the royal we, being me and the Gibbons, only ever write something when we want to. When right. we feel like we want to for our own uh, amusement, not to order. So it's always a, a, something that we find, find funny. And the stuff that I do as Alan, you know, I have laughed at it in the writing room before I do it as Alan. So, in fact, when I'm watching the edits, I laugh at when I'm watching me being Alan. It feels like a very odd thing because I don't feel like I'm laughing at myself. I feel like I'm laughing at this um, uh, character. And there was a period where I thought it was an albatross, mm. a little bit of an albatross. But um, as long as I can do other stuff, I'm happy to come back to Alan. If Alan was all the only thing I had, I might feel slightly, I might go a bit insane. Mm-hmm. We slowly become him and then end up in a padded cell. Puts too much pressure on the whole thing and it's less fun, I guess. Yeah, and I'd be doing, I never want to be ever doing it because I think I've got to pay the rent or, or for some reason like that. I never, ever want to do it in that for those reasons. I got a sense from reading your book that you felt a little bit of an outsider when you were working on the day-to-day with that group of people. Would that be fair? Yeah, I did. I mean, I probably overstate it a bit. I mean, I'm sure it probably irritates Armando a bit because he never, he never, I was never treated that way at all. In fact, you know, it was all, there was a lot of equality. No, I was just aware of it in terms of, you know, they were just better read and they had a greater intellect. I mean, Patrick once said to me, you're more talented than I am, Steve. He said, but I'm cleverer than you are. <laughs> <laughs> did he say that with a straight face? Yeah, he did. And the thing is, he was right. And he was a real mentor to me. He, you know, he guided me when I was... I, had, I did have a sort of raw talent, but I wasn't really aware, self-aware. I was sort of blundering along, trying to just follow my nose, you know, doing bits of comedy and being, you know, trying to be quite excited by it, thinking, I think I'm onto something here. Well, the the nice thing about the way you describe that period in your book is that you say you were aware that this was something special, this was a a different type of a show and this was going to be quite 
great. I was very aware that I was in with the best of the best in terms of comedy. And would you just would they just set you off running and you would just improvise? How did the, like how do you get to a? Uh, we would improvise. We did a bit of improvisation, but uh, um, there would be some scripts as well. So when you've got a line like when Alan's commentating on a football match and just goes shit. Yeah, that was that was that was just improvised. That was, what we did. We, what we did the day today, which is we get a load of footage and, just, and, I, and Amanda would just say, just talk over this footage as Alan. And also, I don't know that much about sport, which actually made it funnier because I just described what I was watching lit, literally. So it just came out funny. Yeah. yeah, and really, I was just doing an amalgam of 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 what sports presenters sounded like to me. It's so great. I mean, that, that, that for me was, and for my friends, was like the Bible for a funny way of saying things. And mm. I guess for a lot of people, you know, they love doing a lot of the voices of the characters you do. But there was also um, other moments in that show that were so subtle and, and just really nicely done, like with Partridge, when he's talking to the lady in the locker room and she suddenly removes her top and mm. suddenly Alan's completely at sea but has to carry on and try not to make it too obvious that he's just doesn't know where to look yeah sometimes you think what would literally really happen and if there's some truth in that like just repeating a word over and over because you can't <laughs> form a thought in your head because you're just looking at someone's tits <laughs> and that's all you can think of that then becomes funny because there's something honest and, and the repeating thing is a good motif that you do with partridge still in the books and and um what's the name that he says over and over again oh dan dan yeah well, yeah but sometimes we do things and think deliberately think i wonder how many times we can say this when it becomes awkward and uncomfortable and therefore funny and not funny and then funny again and staying with the joke as long as possible just breaking that rule of of brevity you know I think we did the same thing in one series of passages where he's having sex. It's a Valentine's Day episode. He's having sex in a hotel room and turns the lights off. And we, we, I think part of us thought, I wonder how long we can make people at home look at essentially a blank screen. <laughs> <laughs> how long we can get away with it? Because, yeah, you're not supposed to do that. Well, you're in a nice position now because you can go pretty much any direction. Philomena was such a success as far as doing a serious film, doing a, a character that didn't rely. There were funny elements about that Martin mm. Sixsmith character that you played, but it wasn't about that. It wasn't about delivering laughs. There was real heart and real drama there. Mm. Obviously, um, you've got Judy Dench. That's not a bad person to be playing opposite if you no, want um, no. some drama to actually hit. Yeah, it was very satisfying because it was, you know, it was a, an article I read in a newspaper and just decided I'm going, I wanted to do something different. Mm. Do something I wanted to do rather than just being, just trying to be funny, which is great and I love it, but it's limiting and it's not the only thing that matters. Maybe some of your dramatic chops were honed working with Michael Winterbottom would that be fair? Like, yeah. um, the first thing I saw you do with him was 24-Hour Party People, which was so good. I mean, that that's one of my all-time favourite films. Anyway, I, that's about a whole world yeah. of music that I love anyway. But all the characterizations in there were so enjoyable. Yeah. And your Tony Wilson was so much more than a caricature. It was very, uh, very three-dimensional, and it played around in a way that I hadn't seen before with... Um, 
you know, breaking the fourth wall and yeah. talking about aspects of of that character and how vain he was <laughs> and how deluded he was, but but still being a very likable guy, you know. Yeah, bold and and uh, I remember Peter Hook said at one point said the biggest, uh, which I thought was a compliment, said the biggest wanker in Manchester being played by the second biggest wanker in Manchester. <laughs> um, I remember he said we had we kept having him say I went to Cambridge in the film. Um, and I remember Tony saying to me, I don't, I don't say that. I don't go around saying I went to Cambridge, but I, I remember he must have told me three times that he did. <laughs> was that fun, making that film? That, that was... film to me was, of all the things I've ever done, that's the film that's, I don't, I've not seen it for years, and I don't want to watch it, because to me it would be like opening a, 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 a shoebox full of old photographs that are too... It, it was too close to I mean I grew up in Manchester and I went to the Hacienda and and um you know I knew Tony when he was on TV as a local reporter and I remember watching his regional shows where he put sex pistols on for the first time so when I went to do the film it was like reliving a part of my youth but instead of playing a bit part as I did in reality I played the central role of of, of Tony at the time I remember saying to Michael why do you want to talk about this this is not real history this is not history this is just happened this is just last week he said no this is this this is like really important period and I was like really and it's funny now looking back I go oh yes of course it's about this seminal moment in in popular culture and all the rest of it but it didn't feel like at the time but as I was making it it's the only thing I've ever done where Michael shoots in such a way that you don't quite know where the camera is and you know, it was pretty wild time. So the line between us hanging out when we weren't shooting and making the film is all blurred in my head. So it'd be like looking at old photographs if I were to watch the film again. It was, it was the only thing I've ever done where I thought, I don't want the film to stop because I'm enjoying pretending to be Tony Wilson. So it, uh, and, and so uh, uh, it's the film, to, emotionally, I'm, it's the most connected thing I have in my career is that film. And, so, and you had a lot of the real... Figures from that scene popping up in the in the film. Yeah, yeah. There's Howard Devoto in one scene, Mark Smith, and um, all these yeah. people. Was that fun having them around? Yeah, it was great. It was great. And even Tony was that bit. I mean, there was one scene where I had me with a giant straw shoveling up white lines along a road that were like about six inches wide, as if he was snorting the lines off the road. And he came in and went, I didn't do that drug uh, when we were shooting it, he said, but I believe in artistic freedom, so carry on shooting it. <laughs> um, and now I'm really glad, so pleased we made that film, because I feel like it was close enough to that period to definitely capture something of the essence of it. And, and when, they, when they rebuilt a replica of the Hacienda in a warehouse in Manchester, and I used to go to the real Hacienda nightclub, so everything that ta- from reality tallied with the, the, the set. So it was odd, and when Tony walked in and burst into tears, cause, because they'd knocked down his Hacienda before, and he was... At one point in the in the film, because there's a lot of improvisation, I said, as Tony, I say something like, I protected myself from the having the dilemma of selling out by never owning anything to sell out. And Tony said to me, he said, I, I really like the way you phrased it when you said that. He said, I didn't actually say that at the time, but it sounded so good that I just I put it into my biography and said that I, I actually said the words that you said. So he was taking from the film and putting it back into reality yeah. and, and, and owning what I'd said as him. Closing the loop. <laughs> yeah. Wow, the postmodern art loop. <laughs> and what was, I mean, Michael Winterbottom does shoot in this unconventional way where you're, I've heard that you're never quite sure 
if it's like a proper take or you don't know what it is he might be shooting at any time one time he might follow you during the action he might take the camera and go somewhere else there might be two cameras he, he and also there's no safe normally you're in a film set you know everyone can stand to one side of the room while they shoot something or you all have to go and stand on the other side of the room so you're not on camera when Michael's shot stuff, there's nowhere safe to go because he might turn the camera and point it in any direction at any time. So if you're not in the scene, you're not allowed on the set. There's no makeup and wardrobe, not allowed on the set. So well, what if your hair's in the wrong place? Well, keep an eye on it and make sure it is in the right place. Well, what, what about my jacket? Well, make sure you, you remember how many buttons you had done up. So there probably are a few continuity errors in these films, but no one gives a damn because it's got this vitality and it feels like it's sort of half real. And we... Wouldn't I know when you make a film, you get asked to hit a mark so that you're in frame or find the light, which means that you don't block, you don't stand behind an object that stops the light that's pointing at you um, illuminating your face. There's, there's lots of technical considerations when you make a film conventionally, and there's none of that with Michael. He never asks you to hit a mark. He never really blocks anything. He just says, sort of go over there and sort of say what you like. And he doesn't say action or cut either. He just goes, you know, go on whenever you're ready. So that it doesn't, there's this delineation between now it's acting and now it's reality. So it really does creep uh, under your skin. And I remember sometimes we'd just be chatting around a pool table, me and the band, the actors playing the Happy Mondays, and we'd be chatting, laughing. And then I realised, why has Michael not come over and said what asked us to do, do a scene? And then I look over in the corner and realise that he's filming us quietly. And yeah. then that ends up in the film. I think we did a scene at Manchester Airport once where he turned up and just said to the band, um, start knocking over tables and stuff in the airport lounge and kicking over chairs. I mean, he had no permission to film there. He said, just keep knocking them over until the security turn up and throw you out. And so that's what they did. They just started knocking tables over. And then security turned up, of course, because someone said, oh, my God, this, this, these people are going mad. And all turned up and grabbed hold of them and literally turfed them all out of the building and just filmed it all and put it in the film. And were there no actors who were just... <laughs> Distressed by that process, who said, "No, come on, look, this is uh, not." People would turn up. Yeah, some actors would actors would turn up and say, "What's going on?" And I, I, because I got up to speed fairly quickly because I was playing the lead role, I would say, "Just the the best thing you can do is stop trying to figure out what's going on and just go with the flow and um, just just do it, and he'll figure it out later and edit it into something that makes sense." So that was really. Uh, enjoyable mm. to do that because it was it was being anti-technical and then in cock and bull story was that your first pairing with rob bryden then um i think it was yeah i mean i've worked with rob before because yeah because uh, he and hugo blick sent me this tape of him doing a, a sort of taster tape of what became marion and jeff oh yeah which i went to the bbc with which I like to remind him of constantly. Sure. Um, I gave him his big break. So I had worked with him, but I'd never worked with him on screen. He did a series for us with Julia Davis called Human Remains, which I'm still... Uh, which sort of went below the radar, but I still... There's a couple of episodes of that that I absolutely adore. That's an amazing show. Yeah. Um, there's one episode called Slytherin about middle-aged swingers, uh, which I just... Uh, I still, even now, I just adore it. I know, I, you know. Um, but anyway, Rob and I had never acted before. We did, we did the cock and bull story now. So, um. and then there's, I think it's the final sequence, isn't it, where you're sat watching the film? Mm. Is this right? Yeah, that's and, right. And you're winding each other up, and it seems real. It seems like yeah, you're yeah. genuinely getting a little bit riled at, on at certain moments. Yeah. 
And then, of course, that was such an effective pairing mm. that you went on to do the trip. Yeah, that's right. You've done two series. You're going to do a third. We just right? did one. We finished it. Oh, yeah, in Spain. In Spain. That, that's being edited. Well, I've, I've got a rough car I'm supposed to look at now, actually. Um, so that's, that's, that's what it, the last two incarnations were like a 90-minute film and six half hours. It's, it's, it was a film in the rest of Europe and America. Which has like an art house release as a movie and gets a bit of track. It does get a bit of traction. Is that that's the Italy one? Is it and the Yorkshire one? They were, oh, they were, they were both, oh, right. I they see. Were both TV series in the UK and the movies elsewhere. And the same things happen with this. This is the trip to Spain, and it's uh, the same, you know, tropes and uh, you know uh, themes that the other ones have. <laughs> um, there's a slightly different story going on and, and issues with me and my son and my girlfriend and. Yeah, well, we know how to do it now, so it was very enjoyable. I mean, it is very... The first one, Michael kept asking us to do it, and I, we kept saying... Rob and I kept saying no, because we thought it sounded like a terrible idea, because we thought, well, you know, at least in those other films we did with Michael, there's some structure, but there seemed to be no structure. And also, celebrities playing themselves had sort of been done on Larry Sanders and Gary Shandling, and it felt like a busted flush... So we really were not keen on it at all uh, because we said it, it's not. And, and it was post extras as well, wasn't it? Like, post extras, post yeah. extras. So it's also. Uh, I didn't want to do that thing of going, "Hey, get a load of me." There's a little bit of when a celebrity makes fun of themselves of like, "Hey, look at me making fun of myself. Aren't I cool? And don't I have loads of humility?" Um, and that just felt like mm, uh, uncomfortable and uh, so we just didn't for lots of reasons we didn't want to do it but Michael kept saying no it won't be that it'll be more than that it'll be better it'll be about sort of middle age and life and we were saying but we haven't got any material and he'd say well it'll, sort of, it'll work out there'll be a roadmap." and I thought well if we do it with Michael eventually I think he just wore us down I said to Rob look should we do this we might as well and it might be good and I think we were in York, not Yorkshire. We were, yeah, we were in Yorkshire. The Inn at Whitewell, in the Trough of Boland, which is a lovely country pub, a beautiful part of the world. We were a couple of days, two or three days into it. We were sat with each other, and we had an agreement. We made an agreement to sort of not be able to rile each other and, if you like, cross the line a bit with each other's personalities to say things that are quite personal how did you do that then what was that do you remember like yeah, i think we had a conversation say look we can take the piss out of each other and we're not supposed to get to be, you know i think rob said you're not going to get upset and no i said well, look if we don't like we'll take it out but yes we've, we've got license to be cruel a bit a bit cruel uh with each other and, and make it uh, have a bit hard to police though isn't it and, and surely it the police. temptation well, for so both of you was to one-up each other by going as far yeah, as you yeah. could well it, would, well it would and sometimes it got a bit uncomfortable but we also knew that the discomfort meant it would be quite watchable and there were times when it was like uh we got a bit frosty but would you say things in those moments or would you just leave it frosty? no sometimes we'd say i'd say that's not going in or he'd say don't talk about that in, on camera and then sometimes we get we get really I'd get more angry than Rob sometimes because I well, and what what do you like in those moments do you go quiet and, and uh, passive aggressive or no I just go I just start going on my high moral horse and grandstanding about you know 
I mean, we're sort of playing ourselves and then and then amplified. And Rob's always doing impersonations and being more happy-go-lucky and laissez-faire and uh, seems to wear life more lightly on his shoulders. And, of course, there is a great deal of truth in that, but, but we, we both are self-aware enough to amplify those. What Rob doesn't do is go around doing impersonations all the time. He doesn't really do that. And I don't go around being pretentious and self-important all the time although there's a bit of that in me so what we do is we just ramp that up in fact what happened was rob and i would sometimes stay in the same hotel and we'd eat with each other in the evening for real not with the cameras on us and when we had those dinners we'd just be nice to each other uh-huh. and we'd just talk about stuff and i think one time we were talking about our families we were both, we both wept i thought i said to him wouldn't it be funny if people saw that what actually happens is we talk tenderly about each other's families and, and say nice things to each other. <laughs> um, so it, but when we do manufacture those conversations, there is a bit of truth in them, and we know that. And we, we were both, after, after a couple of days, we did realise that we said, oh, I said, I think this is going to be good. This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Hello, Steve Coogan. Welcome back to my bench in Los Angeles, corner of Crescent Heights and Santa Monica Boulevard, getting a couple of strange looks from people, but not really. Scruffy old guy doing a podcast on a bench. That's what this city's all about. Uh, thank you so much to Steve Coogan for giving up his time to talk to me. I hope you enjoyed that. I, I would really encourage you to pick up those Alan Partridge books if you haven't done already. I, Alan Partridge and Nomad, co-written with the Gibbons brothers, recommend the audiobooks. They're some of the funniest things I have ever heard. Anyway, thanks to Steve, thanks to Rob Bryden for encouraging him to talk to me. I won't ramble too much at the end of this uh, episode because I've got to go and pack my bags and get on the plane to head back to the UK. I'll chat a little bit more next week. Just before I go, though, I would like to toot my own trumpet. Hey, I'm in Los Angeles. That's what you're supposed to do here. Auto trumpet tooting. We won an award this podcast. The Chortle Internet Award, I think it was. So I was thrilled, and I believe it was voted for by actual humans. So if you were one of those people that voted, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. It makes a big difference 
makes me feel as if I'm not totally wasting my time. And of course, I would like to thank the people that helped me with the podcast, especially Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for his production support and to Matt Lamont, who helps me edit a lot of these and this one in particular as well. Thanks to those chaps. And thanks to everybody who agrees to come on and talk to me. I really appreciate it. Especially Joe Cornish and Louis Theroux and Garth Jennings, my most faithful regular guests. And thanks to you, especially listeners, podcats, for uh, continuing to download the podcast. I really appreciate it. I feel like I should do a muted I love you by because I'm just embarrassed to do a loud one in Hollywood. You know, if someone, like a big agent might be driving past and see me sat on my own on a bench saying, I love you, bye. And then they would think, oh, I was going to cast that guy in a big new blockbusting comedy film, but now I've seen that he appears to be mentally unsound. I'm going to give the part to... James Corden. Take care, listeners. Till next week. I love you. Bye! American people are staring at me. See ya.